prayer together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your promises and your truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, real specifically for your virgin birth. Thank you that you were born of a virgin, and that meant that you didn't inherit a sin nature like us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, real specifically for your life of righteousness and purity. Thank you for never once disobeying your Father. Thank you for never once sinning. Thank you for your perfect righteousness that is imputed to our account. Lord Jesus, thank you real specifically for your death on the cross. Thank you that you bore the Father's wrath in our place. Thank you that you took our sin upon your own shoulders and paid the penalty we should have had to pay. Thank you, Lord Jesus, real specifically for your resurrection. Thank you that you did not stay dead, but you got up out of the grave by the power of the Father. And thank you that you were ascended to heaven. And thank you, Lord Jesus, real specifically for your second coming. Thank you that you've promised to come again, that you will indeed split these skies, that the trumpet will sound and you will physically, bodily come to get your own and to punish your enemies. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the Gospel. Thank you for its good news to our hearts and to our souls and to our eternities. Thank you for the truth of your Word. Help us now to bend our ear to you and to your Word. Help us to understand the truth of your Word. And Lord, I want to thank you real specifically for for the hard parts of your Word. Thank you for the difficult passages that remind us that we're not infinite, that we don't have all knowledge and understanding, that there, that there is a finiteness to us that reminds us that you are indeed infinite, that you are indeed all wise, that you know all things. And so even when we don't understand fully, we trust you fully. Would you help us to do that now, to trust you fully? Speak to us. We, we are desperate to hear your voice. So, Lord Jesus, thank You for all that You are, all that You've promised to be. We want to delight in You, rejoice in You. We want to find our greatest comfort and hope and peace in You now. So we ask You for Your help, and we pray these things in Your great name. Amen. And amen. Well, in our study of the book of Revelation, we have now arrived at chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. 20. For those of you who are familiar with this passage, you know that we're about to deal with one of the most debated passages in the whole Bible. And if you've been part of this church for any length of time, you know right now that we're not just going to skip over the controversial sections. We believe all of God's Word is inspired and is profitable to us in following Jesus, even if we don't know with certainty what something means. Listen, nothing God has said is unimportant. His Word is authoritative and it is sufficient. All of His Word deserves our utmost devotion and attention. And that's really one of the main reasons that our normal practice on Sunday mornings is to work through books of the Bible passage by passage. Because we don't want to skip anything that God has communicated to us. But also another huge benefit to systematically working through books of the Bible like we do most of the time is that it forces us to deal with very hard and controversial passages like this. Because listen, 
If I were just to jump around randomly, like if that were our style here where you just you walked in and you never knew what the text was going to be, never knew what the topic was going to be, I just sort of opened the Bible Monday morning and said, God, please lead me to the text you want me to preach. If, like, if that were our style, I would just never feel led to go to Revelation 20. Like, that would just never be something I would just be drawn to to say, oh, look, let's just deal with this passage this week. Like in my estimation, there are only two reasons anyone would ever preach on Revelation 20. First, you would preach on it because you're way too confident in your understanding of this passage and obsessed with figuring out all the details of the end times. Or, secondly, because you're preaching passage by passage through the book of Revelation. And I certainly don't fit in the first category. And so Revelation 20 is God's word. And it is meant to reveal God's plan and purpose so that we might be equipped, encouraged, and enabled to endure to the end. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's read the passage in its entirety. And then I'm going to introduce the controversy surrounding this passage. And then we're going to do the best that we can do to explain what this passage means and how to apply it to our lives. And so let's read the passage First, Revelation chapter 20, this is the Word of God. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had the authority to, ju- to whom the, th- the authority to judge was committed." Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne 
and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I see four events that John sees in these visions. John sees four events. He's shown, he's given a vision of four events. In verses 1-3, through he sees Satan is bound for 1,000 years. In verses 4-6, through he sees believers reign with Christ for 1,000 years. In verses 7-10, through he sees Satan released and finally destroyed. And in verses 11-15, through he sees the final judgment before God's throne. And so before we dive into the details of each one of these four events in this passage, let me introduce you to the controversy surrounding Revelation chapter 20. The difficulty of interpreting this passage mainly surrounds this 1,000 years. Another way to say 1,000 years would be to use the word millennium. Millennium just means 1,000 years. And so the question is, when does this millennium occur? When is this 1,000 years? Well, there have basically been three different ways that Christians have answered that question throughout history. I'm going to tell you briefly about these three different ways, the view this 1,000 years, and then I'm going to tell you how I see it. But before we do that, let me just clearly say, all three of these views are fine. Good and godly Christians and Bible scholars hold to these views. And so when we talk about these different views, and when I tell you which view I hold and how I interpret this passage, I'm not talking about my enemies. We can graciously disagree with one another on issues like this and still be unified in Jesus and exist in the same church and help one another see more clearly. And so listen, I fully expect right now that there are going to be some of you who disagree with the position I hold and the way I'm going to interpret Revelation 20. Like, like I get that there are going to be people in this room who disagree with me. And that's fine. You have a right to be wrong. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. Listen, I'm fine if we don't see eye to eye on this. Some of my favorite Bible preachers, some of my favorite authors and commentators hold different views than the one that I hold. In fact, before I lay out these three main positions, let me give you a quote from one of my favorite scholars whom I disagree with on this issue, 
but I love his counsel about how to approach Revelation 20. This is from Wayne Grudem. He says it this way. He says, It is important to realize that the interpretation of the details of prophetic passages regarding future events is often a complex and difficult task involving many variable factors. He says, therefore, the degree of certainty that attaches to our conclusions in this area will be much less than with many other doctrines. He says, even though it is important that Christians examine the scriptural data and attempt to reach conclusions on what the Bible teaches about the millennium, he says, I also think it is important for us to recognize that this area of study is complex, and here's the point of the quote, and to extend a large measure of grace to others who hold different views regarding the millennium. Right, I say yes and amen to that. Friends, in fact, I submit to you, I hope you have a category for this. If you don't, I hope this category is built in your mind right now. Extending grace to those who disagree with us on secondary and even third tier issues like this, extending grace to those who disagree with us, I submit to you is more important than simply being right on these issues. Do you have a category for that? I would rather be wrong on this issue and gracious to those who disagree with me than to be right on this issue and be found to be unloving and uncharitable to those who disagree on secondary and third tier issues. So, here are the three main views on the millennium. First, you have pre-millennialism. Pre-millennialism. This view sees Jesus as coming back before the 1,000 years. So remember the question is, where do these 1,000 years fall? How do we see them? Well, premillennials, premillennials see Jesus coming back before the one, this 1,000 years. And so that's why it's called premillennialism. Jesus comes and then the millennium. So this view takes Revelation 19 and 20 as chronological. This is one of the most important points that premillennialists make. Revelation 20 follows Revelation 19, right? In Revelation 19, Jesus returns, and then in chapter 20, we're told about this millennium. And so they say, when Jesus returns, He's going to set up His millennial kingdom on the earth. Glorified believers are going to reign with Him on the earth with no satanic influence for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, they say, then the final judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there are different types of premillennialists. There's historical and there's dispensational, but a lot of them say that this 1,000 years is a literal 1,000 years. That's pre-millennialism. Next, there's post-millennialism. What do you think post-millennialists believe? Well, this view sees Jesus coming back after the 1,000 years. That's why it's called post-millennialism. This, this view says the millennium happens and then Jesus returns at the end of it. Now, post-millennialism sees the millennium as a time of revival on earth where many people come to know the Lord and the influence of Christians grows and grows and grows and influences the entire world. They see the millennium as a time that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and the world gradually becomes more and more Christian until Jesus returns definitively. 
Now, most post-millennialists don't see this a thousand years as literal, but as symbolic of this sort of time period of revival before Jesus comes. Now, to be honest with you, this is the least popular view today in the church. This historically has been one of the main positions, and so that's why I include it here, but I honestly don't know any true post-millennialist. So the third view is ah-millennialism. Ah-millennialism. This view says that the millennium is a current reality. That we are in this symbolic 1,000 years right now. Now the prefix ah means no. And so ah-millennialism means no millennium. However, that's not a, a true representation of this view because amillennialists don't deny that there's a millennium. It's clearly right here in the text. They just say there's no future millennium. In other words, the thousand years in Revelation 20 is just another designation for the entire church age in which we are living in. The same time period as between the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So this view sees the second coming of Jesus as the definitive moment that will totally and radically end history as we know it. Amillennialists say that when Jesus returns, the final judgment will immediately happen upon His return and believers will immediately be in the new heavens and the new earth. There will not be this thousand year wait before, uh, after Jesus comes before the new heavens and the new earth. And so... Which one of these views does our church hold? Well, that's a good question. So our church does not have an official position on the millennium. And we like it that way. Because that means we can hold these different views and it's totally fine. We can love and worship and serve Jesus together even with different understandings of the millennium. But which view do I hold? That's a different question. So let me submit to you that humbly and without 100% certainty on all the, all the issues and details of these things, I submit to you that I think amillennialism is most faithful to Scripture's teaching. And that's my primary goal. I just simply want to be faithful to Scripture and this passage. Listen, there are a lot of reasons that I think amillennialism is correct, and it's the way that I'm going to show you how I interpret this passage but I'm not going to go through all of those reasons and all of those arguments because I think it would just bore you. The main reason I think this is the view that we should hold is because it makes the most sense of this passage right here in Revelation 20, which, by the way, is the only passage in Scripture that mentions this 1,000 years specifically. So let's consider the text, and at times I'll tell you what different views, how they see it, but let's walk through these four events that John sees, and let's try to understand and wrap our minds around what this is talking about. So the first event is Satan is bound for 1,000 years. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. So in verse 1, notice John sees an angel coming down from heaven, with a mega chain. It's a great chain. This is not just a small chain like you'd have in the back of your truck. This is a mega chain. And Satan is captured by this angel. He's tied up with this chain and he's locked away in the bottomless pit. And so we've got to ask some, and answer some questions here about this. For example, when does this take place? 
When is it that Satan is bound like this? Well, premillennialism says this happens after Jesus returns at the beginning of the millennium. However, I think this is a picture of the binding of Satan in response to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In other words, I see this vision as parallel to the vision in Revelation chapter 12. Remember where we were told that Satan was defeated and cast out of heaven? There are many references to Satan being bound by Jesus in other places in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 12, Jesus speaks of binding the strong man, and he's referring to the devil. Jesus uses the exact same word for binding as in Revelation chapter 20. Also, John 12, Jesus speaks of Satan being cast out. Colossians 2 speaks of Satan being disarmed by the cross. And so I think this binding of Satan is the same as the defeat of Satan through the life and death of Jesus. Now, I realize that the main objection to this, to my understanding, is that it doesn't seem like Satan is bound today. Justin, you're saying Satan was bound when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the the grave, but it, it doesn't seem like Satan is chained up and locked away in a bottomless pit right now. I mean, we all admit Satan is very active today. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In fact, that was one of the points of Revelation 12 that we saw. Satan is a real enemy who seeks to devour the church. And so Satan is still active. He is still wreaking havoc. But here's how I see this binding. He is significantly limited by God. He has been significantly limited. He has been bound with a large chain that keeps him from doing everything he wants to do. In fact, notice in the text that Revelation 20 does not say that Satan has been bound in every possible way. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say he's rendered completely powerless. The text actually tells us how Satan is bound. He is bound in a very specific way. Notice verse 3 again. How is he bound? He is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so during this gospel age, Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel and he cannot gather the world to oppose and attack the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, Satan cannot stop the advance of the gospel to every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Right? This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Why can the gates of hell not prevail against the church and the mission of the church? Because Satan has been chained through the work of Jesus. So how long is Satan bound? Well, this is the easy one, right? The text says a thousand years. And so do we understand this a thousand years as literal or as symbolic? Well, as with the vast majority of the numbers in Revelation and in apocalyptic literature, I think this number is symbolic of a long period of time, right? The Bible uses the word a thousand, the number a thousand, in a lot of different ways. It usually refers to a lot of people or to a long period of time or to a lot of whatever it's referring to. For example, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What does that mean? Does that mean God only owns a thousand hills and no more? No, it means He owns them all. Now, 
I know the objection here is, what? Like, you don't take the Bible literally, Justin? And the answer is, yes, the Bible should be read literally. But what does that mean to read the Bible literally? Well, it means that we read it as it was intended. It means we read it as it was intended. If something is intended to be symbolic, reading it literally means understanding what it symbolizes. So I think John is literally using symbols. He's literally using symbols. I mean, just to give you an example from this very text, I know of no one in no view of the millennium who sees Satan as a literal dragon. Nobody, everybody understands that this is a symbol for the ugliness, for the horror of Satan and his goal and his purpose. And so, so we know that this book is using symbols. We know that it's symbolic. And so why would we not take this number as symbolic as well? So I'm reading this passage literally, and I think this is symbolic of a long period of time, like the entire church age. So just a summary. Satan was bound by Jesus' work. He is bound for the entire church age. And at the end of this age, just before Jesus comes, the text tells us that Satan will be released for a short time. And we're going to see more about that in verses 7 through 10. Now, before we move to the second event that John sees, I just want you to think about this in its context. Remember the book of Revelation was written to actual local churches who were actually being persecuted, who were being killed for their faith, who were suffering for the sake of Jesus. Think about how encouraging the fact that Satan is bound by Jesus would have been to the early church. I mean, Satan cannot do what he pleases. That's the message. Sure, Satan might be like a drug lord in prison and he can make some phone calls and he can pull some strings, but he cannot do everything he wants to do. He cannot destroy the church. He cannot thwart God's mission. And friends, this should radically free us to obey God in, in risk-taking ways in this generation. This should radically free us to do some hard things because Satan is bound and God's mission will be accomplished. And so let's get on board with his mission. That's the first event John sees. The second one is this. Believers reign with Christ for a thousand years in verses 4 through 6. Believers reign with Christ for the millennium. So verses 4 through 6 are strangely fantastic. John sees thrones. And he sees people on these thrones, sitting on these thrones, judging. And so who are these people that are sitting on these thrones? Well, John says he sees that they are martyrs. They are those who have been beheaded for the gospel. But also he sees that they are those who did not worship the beast and those who did not receive the mark of the beast. And so in my interpretation of verses 4-6, through six, I think this is a vision of all believers from all from all of church history. These are all believers sitting on thrones, reigning with Jesus for the entire millennium. This is an awesome picture of God's favor to His children. Notice the last sentence of verse 4. It says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In verse 5, John calls this the first 
resurrection. And notice verse 6 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Why? Why is the one who shares in the first resurrection blessed and holy? Because they will not share in the second death. So what does it mean that these believers came to life and were resurrected? Well, in my understanding, this is referring to being born again. This is referring to regeneration. Ephesians chapter 2, remember that great text that says salvation is being raised with Christ. Being seated with Christ and being raised with Christ. So this is the first resurrection. It is being made alive in Jesus. It is moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And notice those who are made alive in Jesus go to heaven when they die. And they sit on thrones and they share in the reign of Jesus over all creation until He comes and brings in the second resurrection, which will be our physical bodies. And so the first resurrection would be our conversion and the reward of being with Jesus in heaven. Believers in the church age. This is what it would be referring to. And so the second resurrection, which the text does not mention, I gather would mean when Jesus returns and raises our physical bodies and reunites our souls with our resurrected, glorified bodies. And so the first death would be physical death. The first death would be dying. Everyone experiences the first death. But not everyone experiences the second death. The second death, it says, has no power over believers. Notice according to verse 14, the second death is eternal death in the lake of fire, which is a metaphor for hell. Those who experience the second death go to hell. Those who experience the first resurrection, those who are united to Jesus and are raised with Him, will never experience the second death. This is some fantastic gospel news. Jesus has rendered the second death powerless over His people. Jesus said in John chapter 11 at the funeral of His friend Lazarus, He says, whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. What does Jesus mean that we shall never die? I mean, we know physical death is coming for all of us if Jesus doesn't return before then. Jesus means He will never face the second death. He will never face the lake of fire if we believe in Him. So what does it mean to reign with Christ in this church age? What does that mean? Well, notice the last part of verse 6. They will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it means to reign with Christ. We know the Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. He's made us priests. There's some sense of reigning with that. I don't know exactly what this means, but it seems awesome, doesn't it? Like, don't you want to reign with Christ? Jesus will allow us to participate in the reward of His suffering. He will allow us to judge and rule and oversee with Him because we are united to Him as He reigns over all. 
I think if I had to guess and just throw this out there, I think this is a picture of what believers in heaven are doing right now. This is a picture of what's going on right now. They're sitting on thrones, reigning with Jesus as priests because they were raised with Jesus by faith. Friends, here's what I know. No matter what position you hold on the millennium, I know that you don't want to miss out on the first resurrection. Because those who experience the first resurrection do not experience the second death. Well, let's look at the third event John sees. Number three, Satan is released and finally destroyed. Verses 7 through 10. Satan is released and he is finally destroyed. So verses 7 through 10 tell us what's going to happen at the end of the millennium. Satan will be released, notice, for a short time time. He will be allowed to deceive the nations, and he will gather unbelievers to rise in rebellion against Jesus and against his followers. Now listen, I think this description of this battle in verses 7-10 through is the same battle that we've already seen again and again and again in the book of Revelation. We saw it in chapter 16 specifically. We saw it last week in chapter 19 at the end. The point is sin makes us so foolish that we would join an army to rise in battle to try to overthrow God. This is how foolish sin makes us. Now, by the way, the main argument of premillennialists is that Revelation 20 follows Revelation 19, which is, is a great argument except for the fact that we've seen this recapitulation in Revelation again and again and again. It's these cycles describing the same events from different vantage points, which I think is exactly what's happening right here. It's this battle we've already seen described from a different angle. And notice that this battle ends exactly the same way. The other battles that we've looked at, the exact way we would expect. Notice verse 9 says, Fire came down from heaven. That is, fire comes down from God and consumed them all. Everyone who was arrayed in battle against the Lord, fire comes down and consumes them all. And in fact, notice what happens in verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Friends, just a word of pastoral counsel to you. Don't joke about hell. It is not funny. It is a real, physical place that is described as a place where people are tormented day and night, forever and ever. You see, we get this picture, I think, from modern media and cartoons and other places where we've seen the devil depicted. We get this perception that the devil is sort of like the, the president of hell. That's not what this text says. The devil's not like enjoying himself in hell and won't be. He's not like some ruler who's doing the punishing of people in hell. No, He is cast into hell and He is tormented day and night forever and ever. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we saw that Satan shows up and he begins deceiving people. He tells lies, he incites violence, he blinds hearts, he hardens souls, and he provokes murders. All through human history, the devil has been wreaking havoc on the earth, devouring and deceiving. But he will not continue forever. He will not. He will be thrown into the lake of fire, and he will be tormented constantly, forever and ever, day and night without end. That is his end. That is his, that is what he will experience. He will be released for a brief time, but he will be soundly and finally defeated. Well, the fourth and the final event that John sees is the final judgment before God's throne in verses 11 through 15. The final judgment before God's throne. So, Revelation chapter 20. Verses 11 through 15 is one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. John sees a vision of the final judgment before God's great white throne. The picture that we get here, just sort of summarizing the entire Bible's teaching on this, is that all believers and unbelievers will be physically raised from the dead on this day. Their souls will be reunited with their bodies and they will stand before the holy judgment of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to address this in all its details right now, but listen, Scripture teaches that even believers will be judged according to what we have done. We know as believers that we are covered in Jesus' righteousness the only thing that we will be able to claim on this day is Jesus, nothing we have done. Our names are written in the book of life by the sovereign grace of our God. This is the best news in all the world. But on this day, believers will be rewarded for our obedience and for our faith. You see, friends, our lives in this life matter for eternity. It matters that we obey. It matters that we do what God has said because on this day we will be judged according to what we have done. We will be rewarded for our obedience. See, believers need not fear this day of judgment, but look forward to it because of what Christ is going to welcome us into. But friends, unbelievers should be dreadfully afraid of this vision. Everything you have ever done is recorded in these books you see them in verse 12? The books were opened. Every text, every tweet, every action and lack of action, every website visited, every word murmured under your breath, you will have to pay the penalty for every sin you have ever committed. And in this courtroom, there's no tainted evidence. There's no biased jury. There's no bribery. There's no collusion. There is only pure white justice. The one on the throne will repay every person according to their deeds. I know this is not a popular picture in our culture of niceness and tolerance, but this is the Word of God. Notice the very last verse of chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. For every person 
whose name is not in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. So let me close like this. On the day of judgment, no one is going to care what you believed about the millennium. It won't matter whether my interpretation of Revelation 20 is right or wrong. The main thing that will matter is whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life. That is, whether you are one of God's chosen and beloved children united to Jesus by faith alone. Because friends, only those who have life in Jesus, only those who have experienced that first resurrection will avoid the second death, which is the lake of fire. And so the main point of this passage, the main point this morning of all of these details, whether we understand them fully or not, we understand that the main point of this passage is to flee to Jesus Christ. If you are following Jesus the response should be rejoice that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and you will escape the second death. The judgment of God will be nothing but blessing to you because Christ was judged in your place. But if you are not following Jesus, I urge you now to cast yourself on Him. Flee to Him like a refuge. Hide yourself in His shelter. Admit your sin and your guilt and put all your hope in Jesus alone for your salvation and everlasting life. Let's pray and flee to Jesus now. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to flee to Jesus, to find refuge and shelter in Him. And I pray real specifically for my friends who are here today who are not trusting in Jesus, who don't have the confidence that this text leads us to have. Oh God, I pray that they would turn from their sin I pray that you would open up their eyes to see the glory and beauty of Jesus and that they would trust in Him alone. Well, God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for speaking to us things even that are hard for us to understand and even harder for us to embrace. I pray You'd remind us today that we are, we are not God. We don't have all the answers, but we trust You, O oh God. We trust that you have a perfect and sovereign plan and we rest ourselves in you. Give unity to our church, Lord God. Give unity to us in this moment as we declare how excited we are for Jesus to come. We long for that day. That is our hope for you, Lord Jesus, to come and to set all things right, for you to renew this creation and for you to welcome us into your presence forever. Come, Lord Jesus, even so, Come, and we pray it in your great name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and celebrate the second coming. Like a bride.